Okay, hold on. Okay, we are on for episode 41 from Bombay Beach. And um I was thinking I mean, I think we've been we've been quite honest and forthright about the uh ups and downs of our chosen relationship style and uh approach but um which is things for which those, is perhaps for those who have listened. not been li- <laughs> which is basically you know questioning the traditional models of monogamy and um and trying to uh maintain loving committed relationships while also being open and free we've talked a lot about freedom and what that means and i think this makes that issue very salient and very much to the fore, you know, brings it to the foreground. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm single again. I'm not sure. Uh, I am too. You are. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, how we got here. <laughs> <laughs> how we ended up just the two of us together in a small abandoned trailer on the toxic sultancy. It's a story that, you know, may unfold over several um weeks or months or episodes but um i i found it interesting that even within the even within the openness of a of of polyamory you still have a certain identity with a relationship that is really um uh significant and that that you you still have to ask that question about whether it makes the most sense for the two people to be identified as a pair bonded couple um, versus being friends versus being lovers. Uh, there's there's a there's a, a significant difference, and um, we both decided that for the time being that might not be the best thing. Um, and again, I I want to talk about things without being gossipy. And with and respecting the uh, the rights of the uh, of privacy of the of the innocent and the guilty alike, yeah. but and, and kind of just from my point of view, lest anyone think uh, for, so. My experience from the outside is people often think um, that those that are engaged in these kind of complicated relationship dynamics um, have it all figured out. And that it seems to be like, oh my God, you have the best of both worlds or like six different worlds at once. What an amazing thing. Um, but I just want to, I guess, uh, state for the record that it's it's new for me. So I was like the the toddler, like jangling the keys off the side of the, you know, uh, dinner table learning that as they fell, like, oh, that's what physics is. Like I was new to new to this. Um, on, yeah. a, on a small side note, I just noticed here this Korg polyphonic analog synthesizer has multiple kinds of voice modes, mm-hmm. one of which is poly, mm-hmm. which shows four squares um, uh, equally separated and kind of like happily apart. One is duo, where there's two squares kind of almost uh, 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 like Necker cube-like things. There's unison, where all the squares are overlapping and seem to be doing the same thing together. There's mono, which is just a lonely square. There's chord, which is three monos uh, in a single file line. Uh, and there's side chain, which is kind of three... You know, each of these has a little icon, three squares that seem to be connected by a, a larger emergent square. And I don't know, let, let that not be a metaphor, uh, as the saying goes. 
Is that is that your own saying? Because I've been using yeah, it too mine. now. Yeah, I think that's mine. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, the um, having multiple relationships is 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 uh, analogously, um, you know, it, it's it, it gets exponentially more complicated. And um, I think that's why people intuitively, you know, shy away from it and realize that it's a, it's treacherous territory. But um, I, I don't think, I don't think the issues, I don't think it's a solution to issues that exist when people are just trying to get along and again, be identified and be more and more enmeshed in each other's lives. And, um, and I think that it, it, it makes certain things that uh, that monogamous couples sweep under the rug uh, uh, more salient uh, and pressing. But um, but I think that 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 a, a lot of the issues are just matters of degree, you know, like what you're allowed, you know, even within a monogamous relationship, you're obviously allowed to talk and connect with other people and then then how much those other connections are eroticized and how much they're left into the imagination i'm not sure how much it makes a difference uh you know and then you know people talk about emotional infidelity people talk about um but the interesting thing for me is that it, it wasn't a matter of uh infidelity or jealousy or other people it was more intrinsic to a dynamic that I think a lot of people probably have experienced during this COVID time of, of, of becoming so enmeshed in a little kind of bubble that, uh, that, that can, one has to constantly ask, is that uh, providing the greatest uh, growth possible? And then, you know, of course there's, there are, there is a significant difference between people who say, I'm going to commit to one person for life you know, no matter what happens. And then there's the person, people who say, you know, they want to be in a relationship as long as they are both really growing in it. And then, you know, of course, you want to avoid, uh, you know, a, a life of perpetual improvisation that has no significant commitments and no, uh, and or, or that commodifies people or uses them. And to me, it's always been a struggle to try and say, like, to, to embrace growth and at the same time, realize that there is, you know, in order to have depth and meaning, you need to have commitment and you need to have risk and you need to not just leave when things are not good. So anyway, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm beginning a new chapter and um, I, I, I'd love to hear from you, you know, in so far as you want to share or not want to share, like what... Uh, what the past, the present, and the future look like. Well, I think back to that point about the, the exponential. Um, Try going a little closer to the mic because your level is very low. That point about the exponential. Hello. That's better. Um, I don't, I don't, the, the thing that immediately came to mind was like uh, when you split the atom, like, you know, like nuclear fission, what happens is not an atom splits in two. Like that doesn't lead to... Uh, you know, the annihilation of the atmosphere, what what happens is that that then causes any nearby atoms to then also split in two, which then causes those nearby atoms to split. And, you know, like there's, <laughs> I think that's a more accurate, you know, the math is probably the same, but like that's what the exponential looks like. Um, and, and there is a relationship between proximity and likelihood of being split by a nearby splitting atom. 
um, which is just which is literal, so it's not a metaphor. So I was thinking one thing I could do, um, just as I like kind of confront and unpack my own experience here, is I uh, previous podcasts I've like uh, you know I've I mask a lot of things under the guise of humor, and uh, previously I talked about love and my ideal version of it as like oh you know I'm a pair bonder there's like two birds my, my ideal is like two birds that sit on a branch and they sleep facing opposite directions so that they're like literally sharing their perceptual field they're like uh, vigilant for predators in 360 degrees if you add up their two eye lines and you know I, I, it's like mostly joking or I wrap it in a joke but I'm I have in my experience been mostly pair bonded and that's the thing that actually like the kind of relationship that mostly drives me and in part it's because my favorite joy in life is seeing the world through someone else's eyes and that's the kind of quickest shortcut to doing that or at least for me that's what works and so this has been very difficult for me um just straight up in terms of um how to how to learn the kind of like the the, the malleability of that concept and what that means and also confronts what it means to not have um, exclusivity over uh, an aspect of someone's attention and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so one way that it usually manifests is in jealousy, which is the least favorite of all emotions uh, for, for, for many people to either experience or to have kind of uh, tossed upon them. Um, and I remember even at some point, there's that like Voyager 1 spacecraft that got sent out uh, at some point and you know it, it contained the golden record i've talked about the mm -hmm. golden record before and it you know contained some things about humanity and then we sent out another one a little bit later a different kind of message and there uh, one thing that i always thought was so funny about that golden record is that it does not mention that we get jealous it's like here's here's what a man looks like here's what a woman looks like here's some prime numbers here's like a bach recording or something here's where we are in the solar system but like what about just the fact that like occasionally we want something that someone else has because we're primates like there's nothing in there about um the emotional content of our experience on this planet wait stop right there do you think that's what jealousy is is wanting no. what someone else has no that was i, I don't think so either yeah um what is it uh being afraid that someone will take away something that you have i don't know do you know is there like a, a canonical poly definition I don't know if there's a canonical poly definition. I think from my experience, it's, um, yeah, that there's definitely a fear of, of, of loss. Um, well, it contrasts with envy, right? How so? Nicely. I feel like envy is when you want something someone else has, but you don't currently have and jealousy being you're afraid that someone <clears throat> wants and or will also have what you already have. And I say that in a non-possessive way, but just in an experiential way. Yeah, I feel like it's it's often tied to uh, 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 a worry about your own self-worth more than uh, yeah. having something that's like w whether the other person, whether you are able to 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 provide for the other person what they want. And if they if you're if they're looking if they're finding that in someone else, then it suddenly turns into this very visceral feeling that you are not that. And and therefore, it, it has little to do with the other person because you know if if 
if if you if you took yourself out of the equation and you care about somebody, you want them to just get what they want, you know, and uh, and that that if they're happy, you're happy. But in so far as it reflects on your own uh, uh, lacks, um, that's I think the painful part. And then and then uh, fear. I think that the the insecurity and fear are the two things that. Um, Fear of the unknown, fear of loss, um, but not again, not in a possessive way. I think. I think it's more in in terms of like the way we use the other person as a mirror, and uh, and and I think that's what 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 polyamory is good for is hopefully moving past that not very constructive feeling of needing uh, validation from what the other person does right yeah. we we haven't talked about the the five rules i, I don't i don't remember um who came up with these but my friend mark rathel who i mentioned a lot the philosophy professor he told me that he he uh read these five rules to uh, a successful relationship which get progressively uh more difficult and counterintuitive but I think there, there's a lot of truth in them. The first one is never tell another adult what to do unless they work for you. Um, this is something I think, I think people very quickly hand over the, the reins of their own autonomy, I think much too quickly, often in things that have nothing to do with, you know, even sexual or, you know, they just suddenly, I think they feel safe or they just default into a place where they're okay with the other person telling them what to do or not what not to do. Uh, I think that's a good thing that polyamory kind of takes away as a presupposition. Like, you know, I'm maintaining autonomy over my own choices and I'm granting that to you. In that sense, it's very idealistic because it's saying I trust you to make your choices. Um, anyway, that's the rule number one. Uh, rules two and three are a bit like dog training, which is uh, uh, ignore bad behavior uh, is rule two and rule three is uh, uh, re uh, reward good behavior. People often default into uh, nagging and criticizing and getting annoyed with bad behavior. And just from a purely pragmatic perspective, if you want to affect change in another person, doing that is just not going to work. And um, but being ignored is what people hate most. And so uh, if, if, if they feel like they're losing your attention when they don't behave the way you want them to, maybe that will make them want to uh, behave better rather than doing it because like, oh, the, my partner's going to be annoyed. Um, then rule number four is it's not about you. And this was super important, I think, and we've talked about this a lot. Like the other person's behavior is not a reflection on you. The other person's behavior is the reflection on them. And that's just, you have to constantly remind yourself of that. And I we think. both like that phrase we heard that it's just, people are just doing things in front of you. Exactly. That's what life is. It's people doing things in front of you. They happen to be in front of you, but not about you. Yeah, they're anyway, there. That's, that's such a hard one to internalize. I've, I like have to repeat it to myself as I'm going through the emotions of feeling that something is about me when it isn't, you know, that's really hard. It's really, and that that is easily the default position and and then the last one is the most difficult which is expect nothing and i think um and that one i think i also take issue with it because obviously you know when you do have commitment it does come with expectations so that one's more of a kind of abstract ideal that i think doesn't always apply but i think it helps to not um 
not to build up expectations, like build up a lot of resentment. And, um, and I think that the, the joy of being single, the joy of being your own person is that you, that your choices are even on the surface, your own. And, and so are the other persons. And, and you do have this great autonomy and mutual respect and, you know, uh, yeah, respect for the other person's choices. Even because I found that even even in a polyamorous relationship, you can start to build up very subtle but growing expectations of who you're expected to be for the other person, and um, you know that's 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 a, a lifelong one to think well, about. And I, think. and I feel like it's intimately related to the um, don't tell what don't tell people what to do unless they work for you, which is to say the kind like even the expectation of listening the expectation of modification of behavior uh i mean those are expectations and so the act of you know i i, I think i can think of at least one relationship um where 98 plus percent of the kind of tension or, or, or things that became at issue were about violations of expectation um and I, I just had never really kind of thought about it in those frames but um you know that's a it's a it's. Uh, I've told this metaphor before, but um, I, I'm pretty sure. But like I, th I think about this when um, in a friendship, in a partnership, in any social dynamic or relationship, where I think to myself, "Oh, I kind of wish they just didn't do behavior X." Mm -hmm. uh, realizing that often best and worst behaviors uh, from people are linked. So, like a kind of recklessness or a kind of boundary pushing. Uh, which on a interpersonal dynamic or relationship dynamic, uh, just in terms of like social social boundaries or something like that, um, you know, you, you witness someone pushing them on a small scale and you think to yourself, man, I really wish that person didn't go so far. But on the back end, that is what is driving their ambition and creativity. It's And it's not like you can say, okay, please remove behavior X from your repertoire and not have consequences on those other parts of them like there are linkages between certain behaviors the good and the bad and so not only is it not in the relationship's interest to kind of say oh, i would like this to change that violates both the expectation rule number five and rule number one which i also take slight odds with um I, th I think i think those rules are very good for a category of relationship it's like it's like how to maintain um a, ca a kind of relationship without hurt but i don't think that's how you optimize for the like true true beauty and connection <laughs> like i don't think those none of them you think all uh, five should be them. broken for no, um i i just i mean it's like universal aphorisms they just don't work at all times so it's almost boring to say oh i take issue with you know one and five in these circumstances because there's no such there would be no such list of five rules that could ever capture the difficulty um in a such a pithy way um I do think there's a there I do think that the the big kind of structural difference in polyamorous the the ideal that exists I remember meeting the first couple um that was really successfully navigating a polyamorous relationship and this was married with children and the 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 husband was flirting with a girl at a party and she went to the wife and said I I I don't know what to do because your husband is flirting and I just want to make sure, you know, it's okay. And I know you guys are open, but you know, it was, it was a confusing place to be. A lot of people aren't, aren't familiar with this. And she just said he can do exactly what he wants. And it was so like a, such a simple, uh, 
permission. But I think for me, the ideal of of saying that someone, even even though you're partnered, even though you're committed, even though you're you're identified with each other, that the other person is free to do what they want. Now, again, if if this goes to a deeper issue of like, should we just be doing what we want generally in life, or should we be dictated by you know larger ideals or concerns or responsibilities? Like, if somebody's just doing whatever impulse, like. Uh, uh, hits them at any moment as we've seen in many ways it can be destructive it can be it can be reckless and um but at the same time as somebody who's built a life around freedom and around kind of uh enjoying both the both the pit both the difficulties and the rewards of kind of living on our own terms um i think it's a beautiful ideal to kind of uh strive towards and a kind of like maxim, like, uh, and I think friendship has this. Hopefully, you know, uh, I think a lot of a lot of the polyamorous uh, ethos takes from friendship, right? Because we have that in our lives. We have multiple multiple friendships, and that that do have a, a, in a very deep way uh, a respect for the other person's utter autonomy, right? But it gets complicated when there's deeper emotions, do you think? Or No. No. <laughs> of course it fucking gets more complicated. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I skipped over. There's another uh, on the voice mode on your on your little synthesizer here. It's called ARP. Do you know what that stands for? Arpeggiator. Oh, it's it's got the, the squares stacked in a kind of staircase formation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like friends um uh so one thing i thought we could do which is a bit odd i wrote a extremely vulnerable in the throes of a, a kind of uh like recognition of myself acting in a way i didn't like which is i was acting jealous in a previous relationship and i was traveling uh, for work at the time uh, in london which will be relevant to the introduction um and I just sat down and I wrote a fake interview with myself, uh, Paris Review style, where I I think I, I think the only book I had with me was the, some of the Paris Review interviews, and I just was like, okay, I, I the only the the best way that I can unpack my own emotions, and I fail at this sometimes when I also try to impose this on on a partner is kind of through like prosecutorial cross examination. Mm-hmm. I have been accused of, I believe, by every single person I've had that has ever loved me and I've ever loved that I can be too prosecutorial. Um, and so I was like, okay, let's let's apply this to myself and like try to get at what is really undermining uh, undermining me. So I basically wrote like a one act play. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you say prosecutorial, I want to unpack that a little bit. Is it the the, the kind of because you're so cerebral that you're just kind of lawyerly about it or you're actually no I'm lawyerly. yeah i set up arguments like minutes in advance using mm-hmm. leading questions and yeah. evidentiary standards of admission yeah it's not healthy <laughs> what's what do you think as someone who is um obviously we want to use rationality and intelligence and good uh dialogue and 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 you know what is what do you think is the heartfelt alternative to being lawyerly in your uh, interactions? I honestly don't know. Um, I But I do know 
the, the exact effect that it has, I have pinpointed, which is, so uh, let, let's say someone lies. Um, the the lie and then and then the lie in and of itself just has a bounded there's a bounded effect that it has you know it only it only extends like in its inter in, in, in sorry in its in in why can't I say that in its immediate kind of like spatial and temporal world it's not going to bleed too far in any in, in, in any direction um, but the problem is then the person who you lied to then kind of like future utterances could be called into question like maybe they're lying again. And so it, it actually does bleed into all potential future things. That's just an example of when I do my like leading question shtick, um, what ends up happening is I'll ask a question and, I, and I'll, they'll know, they'll learn that I'm going to use that against them later. They're, they're, I'm going to use their answer later. Uh -huh. And so then every question becomes possibly that kind of question, which just creates a hostile environment of defensiveness. For everything, even though even even the ones that I were not leading questions are simply questions, um, so it kind of ruins the sincerity of just the act of questioning. So I do know the destabilizing effect that it has. I don't I don't really have an alternative in the kind of heat of the moment. This is what my brain does. It cares about like stacking beliefs and stacking um, reasons and stacking evidence. And then you take that and you wrap it into a ball and then you have a hypothesis and then that's... that's well, yeah, the, I mean, the alternative is, that I think there's a there's a kind of jokey saying that says you can be married or you can be right. Um, because I think a lot of a successful relationship is is involves not being too attached to being right and realizing that being right is only so, uh, only will take you so far in the success of a... Of, of two people getting along. Um, so I think just being okay with not being, your rightness not necessarily being acknowledged. And, and then I think the other thing that's probably lacking in the prosecutorial style is an underlying ethos of forgiveness. Yeah, it's I, not forgiving, it's not kind. Uh, and yeah. it's very, like, the, my tone, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't um, match the tone of the conversation as it evolves. It's just very matter of fact. I think, yeah, I think love has to have in it kindness and forgiveness. Like if you're gonna have the the pancake batter of love, I think those are two of the primary ingredients, you know? Um, Tom, Tom Stoppard in Arcadia says you cannot, you cannot stir things apart. Uh, meaning? Uh, it's, it's like a cute way of saying the second law of thermodynamics that if you, uh, um, if you stir something, if you add energy into it, it's going to get more messy. It's going to get more mixed. Right. No, there, nowhere in the universe does the act of stirring something separate it. I guess except a centrifuge. Uh, well, asterisk that. Um, yeah, and I, I and that that's taking the metaphor of the pancake matter in a different direction. I was just thinking of the fact <laughs> that you just need a couple motion. of yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I was thinking that it's there's there's just a few key ingredients in pancakes, and you've got the flour and your egg and your water. And I think if you have love, you need to have kindness, forgiveness, and you know a a, a genuine, obviously desire to be with the other person and also a desire for the other person's happiness hopefully on par with your own right i think um these are all things probably that to rem re remind oneself during uh, uh times of contention right um but so let's read this thing yeah so uh 
that was a copy. We can pretend we are doing this spontaneously, but I said mirror copy. So Tao's going to read uh, the interviewer, uh, and and I will read response. Um, this is effectively a one act play, but it's you know I mean I even look at the, if you see the top I even like copy pasted the Paris Review logo to make it to make it seem official. Um, there's there's for those who don't know the Paris Review interviews, it's often with like literary figures, and they can be combative. That's why I love them so much. It kind of is encouraged interviewer and interviewee to have a bit of a bit of a dialogue um, and they often take place over the course of days they're not just quick little things the writer uh, or the interviewee often gets to edit what is said after the fact they kind of go back through it and, and make a kind of piece of art out of the thing that's why I think most of them read like one act plays um, and, so, and so I'm going to read the introduction right yeah and um, so this is this is you as a voice in my head effectively this interview was conducted in the London hotel room of the interviewee over the course of two days, sometime between 1983 and now. The room, temporary home to bed and man, both single, is put together with the kind of overlapping spatial economy afforded to but a few. Special places, tombs, cheap hotel rooms like this one, and perhaps the International Space Station. Because of this, it is impossible not to imagine both our bodies floating from a lack of either gravity or vivre. There is a copy of uh, The Next Hundred Years by George Friedman on the left, still made uh, side of the bed. The book has the disheveled, slightly lost look as if it had been picked up at a bar the night before and roughly slept with. Used floss litters the floor like thin dead forest leaves. Interviewer, how does one get over a previous relationship? Do you do that on purpose to try to uh, catch me off guard? No. Okay, one cannot nor does one ever get over a previous relationship in the way that one gets over, say, a hill or the flu. The metaphor is a bad one. Are you asking whether or not there is a difference between the objects and experiences one relates to, i.e. a difference between getting over a hill, a napkin, or a lover? This is not meant to dodge the question. I merely wish to point out that your question is a bad one. I suppose I'm asking that, yes. Um, can one forget about a lover as one forgets about, to use your examples, uh, a particular napkin or hill? Those were examples I used, not my examples. It was said of the artist uh, Lonnie Johnson after a virus ate her hippocampus that her, quote, retrograde amnesia or difficulty remembering her past is so extensive that she cannot recall any friends even her ex-husband, a music professor she lived with for a decade. Now that is an obliteration. That is what it means to get over a lover. That is also a tragedy. Are you familiar with the Bourne films? Jason Bourne wakes up in the first scene with somewhere between no to partial memories, but the entire premise of the, what is it, four, if you make it to the end of all of them, is that he still has basically baggage with this chick named Nikki Parsons. Even handsome amnesiacs have emotional baggage. What hope is there? At some point in your life, you seem to have switched from having a few long-term relationships to having more shorter ones. You have, for example, not celebrated a one-year anniversary with any lover since 2007. That's still fucking true. Uh, what is your question exactly? I'm not going to do your job for you. What do you think happened? What's the difference between a short and a long relationship? <clears throat> I think about the novelist John Steinbeck on two and only two occasions. One, while buying socks in Monterey. Two, he said something quite intelligent once 
on the difference between a short novel and a long one, and it has always stuck to me as relevant to relationships. A lover might wonder, as an author does of his books, whether he is he or she is, say, a short or long story type. Steinbeck starts with the idea that a book is essentially just a wound. He wrote, quote, It has been said often that a big book is, is more important and has more authority than a short book. There are exceptions, of course, but it is very nearly always true. I have tried to find a reasonable explanation for this, and at last have come up with my theory to wit. The human mind, particularly in the present, is troubled and fogged and bee-stung with a thousand little details from taxes to war worry to the price of meat. All these usually get together, and the result in a man's fighting with his wife, and result in a man's fighting with his wife because that is the easiest channel of relief for inner unrest. End quote. He's not done yet, but I want to interrupt briefly. What I like most is that he is willing to zoom in on what it is to be human, perhaps even anxious, i.e. to be bee-stung constantly by an all-too-busy mind. Do you feel bee-stung even right now during this interview? Yes, of course. Don't you? Nope. Anyway, Steinbeck continues, quote, Now, we must think of a book as a wedge driven into a man's personal life. A short book would be in and out quickly. And it is possible for such a wedge to open the mind and do its work before it is withdrawn, leaving quivering nerves and cut tissue. A long book, on the other hand, drives in very slowly, and if only in point of time remains for a while. Instead of cutting and leaving, it allows the mind to rearrange itself to fit around the wedge. Let's carry the analogy a little further. When the quick wedge is withdrawn, the tendency of the mind is quickly to heal itself exactly as it was before the attack. With the long book, perhaps the healing has been warped around the shape of the wedge, so that when the wedge is finally withdrawn and the book sit down, the mind cannot ever be quite what it was before. See, I think that's a lovely analogy. How I read what he's saying is that simply the body's natural innate response differs whether something, a novel, a relationship, or I suppose an actual wedge was under your skin for a short time or a long time. This is all about the body and its pre-programmed coping. Skin tries, say, with a minor paper cut to heal itself exactly as before. Only when it realizes it cannot does it engulf, calcify, and try to extrude the foreign object. And finally, if at last the body cannot even extrude the thing, the body simply deals with it. Importantly, when something is stuck in there, or was very recently removed, there are physiological changes to the entire area. Peripheral nerve thresholds change to touch, to pain, to hot, to cold. They are simultaneously sensitized and numb. Naive people might think this is a contradiction, but it is not. It simply means the receptive field of the nerves have cut out the middle ranges. There are entire classes of objects, bullets, knives, and sure, relationships, that you do not pull out ever, even in surgery. They stay because they have to. Tendrils of nerves and vasculature have wrapped too tight around them, and you simply must leave them in the body to, I suppose, rot. Does that mean they are over it? In any of these situations, recalibration coping, is anyone ever over it? Of course not. These uh, threshold changes, are they permanent? In the ideal world, capitalized because, it's, because it is fictional, like heaven. Oh, man. It used to be bleak. <laughs> Two lovers who are trying to get back together would return precisely to the previous thresholds, the moment at which they, together, were happiest. But there is a problem. Because the thresholds are changed already, and with it one's relation to the outside world is also changed. The entire mechanism by which information is gained about the outside world, luminosity, taste, what is or isn't erotic, say, is changed. And so a lot more than just thresholds are altered. The way of seeing the world is altered. It might not be possible to return exactly to before. Are the thresholds damaged? No, not necessarily, just different. Permanently? Unclear. My point? Simply, the harder the wound, the longer the time needed for the thresholds to return. But I believe they can. And the goal of getting back together 
would be not to return them to exactly as before, that is an equal measure impossible and irresponsible, but rather to get them back to properly accommodating the thrills, joys, and pains of the outside world and the other person. The goal is to get back to responsiveness, not ideal. I don't know the equation to do so, nor the, even the units, but it seems qualitatively simple. Surely it involves time, compassion, and intimacy in some balance. Do you consider yourself a jealous person? Might that ruin your ability to get back together with a lover? <clears throat> this is interesting and hard, but yes, I do at times feel jealousy. Mostly, though, and this is a subtle point, I really like learning about how people interact in the world. It gives me great, perhaps the greatest pleasure to accurately predict other people's movements, thoughts, future behaviors. Tarantino is the best at this. The tension in his better scenes involves you, the audience, knowing that some characters know some things, but not all the things, and so they're be they are behaving according to their subset of knowledge, but that other characters know a slightly different amount of things, that still other characters know still other things. And that, here's the key point, you as audience don't know everything yet either. You know more than any individual character, but not everything. He sets all these elements up like dominoes and watches them collide often over a single dinner table. This is brilliant when done well and requires knowledge of how people, knowing what they know and when they know it, are likely to act. This is also how I exist socially, as if I am watching a great QT scene unfold. To do all this, though, I have to know the most amount of information possible about how people behave. And because a large part of the world is how men and women act toward each other, and a large part of one's personality is how one interacts with members of both sexes, and how one has in the past, the dynamics of how men and women interact are often the most important aspect of understanding fully any given scene. So how does one discover the truth of any given scene? First, I think one observes and gets as much information from observation as possible. Second, one must, if one can, ask those involved what they meant or intended by their actions or words to calibrate. One of the joys to me of having a lover is, ideally, I could ask that lover their reasons for doing things, and that reason would be truthful and reflect deliberation if deliberation had been present, or none if there had been none. But it would always need be true, honest, and usually complex, contradictory, and multifaceted. Uncoincidentally, the amount of things that people have simple, clear answers to are precisely the amount of things that are uninteresting in the world. I find another mind's complex reasoning with ambiguity and social processing very, very sexy. Insofar as I believe, quote, the one is not a declarative sentence or an adjective, but just an opening clause to a sentence, I believe I would say, quote, the one who I want to understand the most is my version of a soulmate. Oh. But here's the thing. Uh, it can be hard, impossible, to ask questions of a current lover without appearing to be jealous. All you've said so far about whether or not you is whether or not you appear jealous, not whether you actually are. Oh, fine. Uh, I suppose it comes down fundamentally to a few things, some of which are observations based on watching the world qua Tarantino, and as well, some personal occurrences. I will try to answer your actual question. <clears throat> uh, one. People are everywhere and great and counterfactually great. That's kind of a headline title. You find people everywhere. People tend to fall in love wherever they go, do they not? What does this say about love? That most people, when they go to school, find someone somewhere in some city from the ages of 17 to 22 and they fall in love. It reminds me of the old adage that as a kid, you don't realize what a non-coincidence it is that your best friend lives on your block. And here's why I mention this. I tend to play in my spare time as I am watching a scene unfold and as a kid would in a sandbox, in counterfactual worlds. So logically, I play with the following counterfactual. In the absence of me, who would my lover be with? I'm sure they would be with someone. An interesting, treacherous question is who? 
one of their friends, one of my friends, one of their new Facebook friends, one of their old Facebook friends where they became friends without really knowing each other, but after a nice conversation once at a party and have kept loose tabs on each other and therefore gained familiarity and have always been piqued by, but the timing has never really worked out. Some other person that they met, say, today, tonight, at a talk in a poetry brothel. It's an odd question, but it occasionally creeps into the corners of my vision, like when one thinks they see movement far, far away on the horizon of the eye line, but the eye simply has to look. I wish it was possible to keep the counterfactual to the counterfactual world. Some people I hear can, and if I could, I would. But I do find that occasionally, very rarely, but occasionally, my heart beats just a little bit faster at the thought that if I disappeared, my lover would probably be with someone they know or just met or are about to meet. It shouldn't happen, but it does, like solar eclipses. That seems so improbable, right? That they are two of the exact same fucking size disks in the sky and that they line up perfectly every once in a while? That shouldn't ever happen conceptually, mathematically, but it does. Jealousy is like that. An improbable eclipse from the counterfactual world. Uh, two, proximity is just a small degree of distance. Uh, I've had two relationships conducted over distance. Let's call them A and B. I loved both of these girls and they loved me. An A girl cheated on me. I discovered this by logically deducing it through odd changes in her behavior that I had to piece together myself, Tarantino-like, in which I must have been in my late 20s, that's too many Tarantino references, <laughs> in which turned out to be correct. She tried to get me back, and in the months that followed involving global low points in my life, I forgave her and decided we would indeed be together again. But by this point, despite still desperately pleading to be back with me, she had, of course, moved on to be with someone else. I have never quite forgiven forgiveness for this. In B, Girl kissed someone else she was not meant to, and then lied about it at first, breaking down philosophically defensively. The difference between the act of kissing and being kissed. <coughs> and even then, only when pressed on the matter, with versions of the same repeated question. In B, both girl and I had already met by the end and the months before the end, the people that we would both proceed to date pretty much the day after we broke up. It was fine in that we both moved on in a healthy fashion, but as a precedent, it was awful. This relates somewhat to people are everywhere in great and counterfactually great above, which is to say that people tend to congregate with like. Like begets like. Attractive, intelligent people will meet other attractive, intelligent people often, and they will feel the things that one feels when one is intellectually challenged, where their loins stir just a little bit at the sight of cheekbones at a specific angle with a specific shadow or a witticism. It happens. I am positive that A and B loved me. I blame to some extent distance, but the problem is that now I've become like the Large Hadron Collider, an anomaly detector, able to detect small perturbations down to five sigma. Sure, I may ultimately detect something universally true about the social romantic world others would not, but I may also destroy the world once I get turned on. That's great. People, th people thought the LHC, when they turned it on, it would destroy the world. Yeah. But it's got that double entendre with the, it's great. And here's where it gets really tricky. Ambition and projects and all the things I like doing are in many ways types of distance. Not geographic per se, but interactive attentional distance, a kind of distance, in that the artistic and hopefully professional things I want the most often involve singular driven acts accomplished alone. I feel most productive artistically when I'm working in lab or at my desk alone, somewhat obsessively, on a project that I care about. In some ways, it resembles the counterfactual question, what would happen if I disappeared? Because I have effectively disappeared. As if to work a lot is to flirt with the disappearing act, briefly intermittently, like a bit character on a TV show when the antenna signal is bad. I currently, likely I must admit, because of thresholds set by A and B that still have not recovered, have it in my mind that were I to write something on the scale of a nonfiction book or novel that I would have to be single. Why? 
because I cannot imagine that during the time it would take the potentially thousands of hours to do such a project, stolen as the time must be from weekends and morning sex and dinners and comedy shows and conversation, that any person <clears throat> would stay with me and be able to maintain their same affections toward me given the seeming inevitability of the distance function, i.e. the high likelihood of my lover meeting someone else that one would counterfactually and maybe factually C, A, and B wish to be with. If this is a subspecies of jealousy, then I am indeed stricken with it, as one would be with malaria in each and every one of their blood cells. Three, I'm biased and kind of great and therefore biased. There's an empirical part of me that also realizes that in those eclipse-like moments when jealousy is real and about to blanket the earth in darkness, that I might be biased. A large part of how I imagine my lover interacting with other men is basically just a retelling of how they acted with me in the beginning. And this is biased because truth be told, <clears throat> people tend to like me and usually rather quickly and sometimes against all likelihood and sometimes quicker than they want to. And so it is that I imagine in all cases and with all men, these same women are just as easily swept off their same light feet into different arms. Maybe they do, maybe not, I cannot know really. Four, people fall out of love. Even with the means to track all extinction level asteroids headed towards Earth from almost every spherical degree and in almost all directions around us, extending in all planes and at all angles, with a type of vigilance that is essentially infinite. It is still impossible to see those asteroids that curve and come from behind the sun, i.e. those that are most likely to hit us, until it is too late, <clears throat> because our eyes mostly hate the thing and refuse to look at it. Annie Dillard once wrote, quote, We have really only that one light, one source for all power, and yet we must turn away from it by universal decree. Nobody here on the planet seems aware of this strange, powerful taboo that we all walk about carefully averting our faces this way and that, lest our eyes be blasted forever. When were you last jealous? Today. Um, <laughs> I think it can be really hard to tell. When something a lover does strikes me as an anomalous behavior or utterance, I tend to bring it up with them right away. I've learned that I need to. I don't like the feeling of worrying. It makes me, it, it makes my head hot. Not hot like barroom brawlers quick to strike hot, but physically actually hot. My brain, like a molecule in a box, begins to move faster and faster against its own skull. This goes away if and only if I can ask about the moment, discuss it lightly, and the person answers me honestly and insightfully. And then scarily, I have to be able to believe them, which comes with its own messiness. <coughs> if these can all happen, it goes away entirely, never to appear again. People easier than I to be lovers with, and I know there are many, might not bring up the odd comment or pattern or behavior, but I think here I have a peculiar sensibility. I was twice proven right by observation alone that when odd behaviors are strung together, they might mean something deeper had happened or the relationship was being violated in some way. My peripheral thresholds are, to use my own belabored metaphor, quite low in this area. I feel these moments as heat, like a snake. Other people's thresholds are, I am realizing, much higher. What do you mean by that? I think it is hard to intuit other people's thresholds, <clears throat> and this can be problematic for trust. Let me give an example. When I ask a lover, say, about something they did or said, or whether they were not into a certain sex act, or what they spoke about with a certain person, their first natural reaction when being asked this question, let's call it Q1, is to ask themselves why I would be asking such a question. This is normal. So here, my lover wonders why I asked Q1. Next, though, if it is a bit of a probing question, they then imagine what threshold, let's call it T1, associated with Q1, 
would have to be crossed in order for they themselves to have asked Q1. As in, they simulate what would have had to have taken place for them to have been so bothered as to ask Q1. But the thing is, if there are different thresholds between the two people, this is not at all accurate for learning why the other person asked it. For some people who have really high thresholds for tolerance of outlying behaviors, it would take a lot to care or ask their lover about a single anomaly. So if they do get asked Q1, and it relates to some silly anomalous utterance or gesture, they assume that their own T1 has been crossed in the other person's mind, and therefore assume the worst, i.e. that something major is happening in the mind of the other person. But in reality, only the other person's T1 has just been crossed, which if that person like me just wants to know everything, is much more harmless, innocent, etc. So basically the point is that it is really hard to get an accurate T1 for why another person has asked you something. What questions do you want to ask but cannot? <clears throat> beautiful women, all women, but especially beautiful, intelligent women, get asked out a lot. I've been lucky enough to date a few of these women, and I've always wondered, for example, how do they say no when they're asked out? Do they actually say no? Who does the asking out, and according to the best guesses of the lover, why? Do they respond by saying they have a boyfriend, or that they are not dating? Do they ignore the asker-outer? Were they flattered? Does their response change based on whether or not they were flattered? Do the moments of being asked out replay in their minds in the aftermath of, say, an argument? Or how quickly after a breakup do they think, hmm, I remember that one cute guy? How early did they know this person was interested in them in the evening or conversation? Or if that is impossibly complex to answer, how early did they guess at, say, 75% confidence that the person was interested in them? Whatever that feeling of almost sure is, however, that is encoded in the brain. Or say my most recent lover got drinks with her ex, which used to be part of foreplay in their, I think, predominantly sexual relationship. Of the maybe 1,000 thoughts that go through any given person's head per hour, how many of those thousand did both sides imagine their previous sex life or relate their drinks or food to their previous dates? Had they been to the place before? Did they sit in their favorite spot? People that play games don't ever stop playing games. So to what degree was a game being played? Does she think he would have slept with her uh, had she asked Had she asked you that night? Does that change what the evening was to both sides? People hate these questions. It is the rare person that digs in their mental backyard looking for treasure. One of my favorite things as a kid, though, was digging up my friend's backyards to look for stuff. I am a digger. I hate obfuscation of all kinds. How does one ask these questions without appearing jealous? I don't know. I have never navigated this well. Let's say you have a partner. Do her past lovers or potentially future ones make you more jealous? That's kind of uh, envy slash jealousy kind of thing. All right. Uh, mythology is supposed to be a thing that, like fire, made us us, right? <clears throat> Probably some Paleolithic grunt indicated a predator or a waterfall or some surprise, and then a grandiose second grunt indicated, quote, remember that first time I had to grunt? Man, that sure was worth remembering. This, then, the second grunt, was just a mythical version of whatever the first grunt encoded. So myths encode information but tend to emphasize a certain grandiosity to people or events that isn't quite an accurate reflection. Myths are outlandish precisely, precisely because they want to elevate moments from the remembered past in order to stand out. I have a problematic relationship, I think, with myths in the way that all protonaceous things, enzymes, people, have a problematic relationship with fire, technically, if the fire is too close. My mythological skin is albino pale here, re-myth, I burn easily. I remember once talking to a man at a bar who was at the time dating a widow. He was having trouble with the idea that his lover was his lover, not because of choices she had made, but because someone had accidentally died. She made it a rule on day one that he was to never ask her about her previous husband, and she would never speak of him. Insofar as the hope may have been to, present tension, to prevent <clears throat> tension or sadness, 
this rule had the opposite effect, at least for him, of causing the very tension and sadness she hoped to avoid. An incredibly important part of his new lover's recent life was off-limits to inquiry, and he couldn't help but build up a mythological understanding of who this other man had been. I asked him if he knew the husband's name or had ever seen pictures. He said no. I asked him then if the husband was taller than he was. He said yes. I asked how he knew, and he said he had inferred it based on her cuddling behavior and how she touched him, that there seemed something to her corrections and gestures that made it seem like she expected something longer. It reminded me of once trying to quantify heights of fictional characters for a class I was teaching and learning that no reader really imagined the heights of characters. They are rather mostly gray blobs of approximately similar heights. So what is jealousy? Simple. It is the imbuing of these gray blobs into something greater on some or all dimensions, physical, social, <clears throat> intellectual, sexual, relative to oneself. It is, in other words, fundamentally mythological. This is the molding process by which the Greeks elevated demigods, and the degree to which these comparisons matter, and the degree to which they are skewed relative to reality, is the range in which individuals differ. This is vaguely a step-by-step -step of how I become jealous of past or future partners in equal measure. I can tell, I think, during sex, say, when my lovers expect different proportions, or confront a position that doesn't work as well as they remember, or sometimes ones that work better. This is information, embodied information about past lovers. Of course, sex is just one of many dimensions on which partners old and new interact and which can be compared. Conversation, wit, trust, comfort, and public contact all matter and honestly matter more. But with sex, for me, eclipses start to dot the counterfactual sky. The last time I was jealous, right now. To a small degree, my lover, the most recent one, who I thought was the love of my life, just left me, and I'm imagining who she will meet tonight. Who will make her smile and think to themselves, I've got a chance, could this be the one? Now that the counterfactual, quote, who would she be with if not me, is more factual than counterfactual. And when she starts dating someone new, total solar eclipse, crops will die. The last time I was really jealous, like brain hot so, <clears throat> probably when the same ex-lover watched the film Indecent Proposal after breaking up with me, and it reminded me, maybe her too, of that dinner as foreplay relationship she once had, one that in some ways caused or were like gravitationally related to some arguments we had. I molded the clay gray figure into Robert Redford, gave him a billion dollars, a whip, and a commanding presence, and imagined just how sexy that is to her and whether she ever felt that with me or to what degree in kind. There are many reasons people are attracted to one another, and power and money are one. They're not in and of themselves anything important or special, of course, but they imbue their owner with many other secondary attractive traits, like side effects to a drug, confidence, material splendor, a lack of certain type of stress, hierarchical social stature, etc. And these are things I don't have in my life right now, and dreadfully may never. That just, like, hurts. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like this entire process has a built-in stopgap if only after asking a question of your lover, you were able to trust her. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, <clears throat> this is actually the story that I suggested you read. <laughs> it's all about It was great. <laughs> now we get to do it in public. Uh, in Don Quixote, there's a short story called, depending on the translation, or maybe this is my way of getting you to read it, uh, which is maybe in and itself interesting. The ill-advised curiosity, or the curious impertinent, or the impertinent curiosity, or the man who is recklessly curious, or the impertinently curious man. I suppose, like how people are simply the collections of other people's impressions of them, it is best to think of the story as some average of all the titles at once. Anselmo is the titular fool here. <clears throat> That's me. 
and Lothario, his friend. Anselmo has, at story start, a perfect wife, Camilla, and a genuine loyal best friend, Lothario. He has a complete and fulfilling life. Camilla is intelligent, devoted, beautiful, proper, stylish, talented, and charming. They have been only with each other and love each other immensely, infinitely. The problem begins when Anselmo takes issue with the concept and the very idea of purity. In context, this is satire. They are spoofing chivalry, as the entirety of Don Quixote does. The idea is to mock adherence to purity and its exaltation, and to do so, it draws in wild caricature. The caricature question, is Camilla pure? Of course, she has been entirely faithful and has never even thought an infidel thought at story start about another man. However, Anselmo has a sort of proof of concept problem with the word pure. Of all the qualities that one can be, he begins to doubt that purity can be ascribed to things that have not been tested. So he curiously, impertinently, asks Lothario to try to seduce his wife and get something like objective, get something like her objective purity number via trial. Lothario responds as follows, quote, Tell me, Anselmo, if heaven or good fortune had made thee master and lawful owner of a diamond of the finest quality, with the excellence and purity of which all the lapidaries that had seen it had been satisfied, saying with one voice and common consent that in purity, quality, and fineness, it was all that a stone of the kind could possibly be, that thyself too being of the same belief as knowing nothing to the contrary, would it be reasonable in thee to desire to take that diamond and place it between an anvil and a hammer, and by mere force of blows and strength of arm, try if it were as hard and as fine as they said? And if thou didst, and if the stone should resist so silly a test, that would add nothing to its value or reputation. And if it were broken, as it might be, would not all be lost? Undoubtedly, it would, leaving its owner to be rated as a fool in the opinion of all. Consider then, Anselmo, my friend, that Camilla is a diamond of the finest quality as well in thy estimation as in that of others, and that it is contrary to reason to expose her to the risk of being broken. For if she remains intact, she cannot rise to a higher value than she now possesses. And if she give way and be unable to resist, bethink thee now how thou wilt be deprived of her, and with what good reason thou wilt complain of thyself for having been the cause of her ruin and thine own. Remember, there is no jewel in the world so precious as a chaste and virtuous woman, and that the whole honor of women consists in reputation. And since thy, thy wife's is of that high excellence that thou knowest, wherefore shouldest thou seek to call that truth in question? Remember, my friend, that woman is an imperfect animal, and that impediments are not to be placed in her way to make her trip and fall, but that they should be removed and her path left clear of all obstacles, so that without hindrance she may run her course freely to attain the desired perfection which consists in being virtuous. Naturalists tell us that the ermine is a little animal which has a fur of purest white, and that when the hunters wish to take it, they make use of this artifice. Having ascertained the places which it frequents and passes, they stop the way to them with mud, and then rousing it, drive it towards the spot. And as soon as the ermine comes to the mud, it halts and allows itself to be taken captive rather than pass through the mire and spoil and sully its whiteness, which it values more than life and liberty. Of course, <clears throat> um, everyone ends up dead. Now, this story relates no more to how I think than, say, Hamlet relates to how I think about having a dead father. But it approximates my relationship not with purity, which is a foolish, grotesque, Arthurian concept, but with trust. There's a part of me that concerns itself with, let's call it trustworthiness, is either one of two categories, having been proven false or 
not yet having been proven false. If you're so concerned with how attractive you appear, and you know, and you know, jealousy is unattractive. Why do you let yourself be jealous? Blank. No answer. <laughs> do you want your most recent lover back? What would you be doing if she were here with you in London? Her name is. And if you use a pronoun to describe her in print, you better fucking capitalize it. I would kill every living thing on the planet to have her back. The paint would chip in this room because the sounds would be chemically corrosive to walls. <clears throat> if you had to write down what I would be telling her to do right now, your pen would explode. You'd be fired on the spot. The magazine you write for would go out of business after briefly and for only one issue, doing the best business it had ever done because it would have been purchased by every person on the planet. And during the first point of order at some time, travelers meeting in the future where, they're decide where they are deciding what one thing to go back and fix in the world, First on their final list would be to assassinate Gutenberg because it was his invention that led ultimately to you publishing what I would be doing to her right now, which itself caused a sixth massive extinction event because it caused language to die, literally die out, due to the indecency of what I would be saying, the impossibility of it, and the realization that the English language itself had just been fucked in the ass and would never recover its proper gait ever again. If a person is a collection of stories they tell to themselves and to others, do you worry that once you publish, tell, or live all your best stories, you will have nothing left? Do you worry about running out of questions? No. Why? Nor am I then worried about running out of stories. Actually, I'm out of questions. I know. Part two. How does... No, it's the same thing. What's that? I don't think... No. Part two is just repeat. That's the end. Oh, that is the end. That is okay. The end. <laughs> <laughs> I, I often wonder... I think there's an assumption that um, the 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 better your brain is at things, that must be the more adaptive quality. Like you know, we 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 tend towards having better memories and better perception. And and I often wonder if what seem like flaws are actually adaptive. Like whether forgetting is is evolutionarily adaptive more than remembering. Mm -hmm. And I I can't help think that. Um, this is evidence that too much intelligence drives somebody a little bit crazy. <laughs> like, I, oh, hear, I think a lot of us it, have... Go ahead. Hearing it out loud, I, it, I'm worried about that person. <laughs> <laughs> like, thinking too much um, is, uh, is definitely uh, making your life more difficult, so, as evidenced by this. This was many, many years ago, and that doesn't say too much but it is something that i find interesting to kind of go back on as one might like a journal entry mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know um and i mean this was a response to it being clear to me that i had to like confront these issues and uh, did it help did oh, writing yeah, it help i'm perfect now. <laughs> i used to be conceited but now i'm perfect <laughs> <laughs> no i just do the same shit over and over it's the same pattern i can't stop well, see, that's that's the thing. Our, our it, 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 there's a whole premise of therapy is that like shedding light on something will help the process or start the process of healing, and I'm not sure that's always the case. So there's there's a there was a a, a psychologist called James Hillman who wrote a book called The Myth of Analysis, and um, his premise was that th the soul is a room that if it's if you illuminate every corner it becomes uninhabitable and there's i think that there's 
I, I met a couple, a woman who was 98 years old in Italy and had been with her husband for 70 years. And it was right while I was making monogamish. And I was like, what's the secret to, um, to such a long marriage? And she looked slyly and she said, you don't ask too many questions. And um, <laughs> the, 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 this is a little reminiscent of that as well. I think there is a certain yeah. ignorance is bliss. Um, That's where my, you know, the prosecutorial nature that I mentioned comes in. Yeah. <clears throat> and by the way, there is a part two, but it's literally copy pasted everything you heard mm -hmm. just copy paste and then i just change the name oh at the bottom to reflect like the, the name of the woman to reflect the fact that uh i just it's the same cycle over and over it's battlestar galactic ish you yeah know, this has happened before this will happen again but you know and i and i i'm i'm being glib a little bit like i do think we do need to think about these things and introspection is important but i uh, i do think there's you you have to that I think I I I'm I'm so intuitively anti-religion, so I I don't like using this word, but I think it's the the appropriate one. I think the, the another one of the ingredients of love is faith, mm -hmm. and having having just and and faith, you know, by very definition, is not grounded in evidence, right? And so I think the answer to the Lothario story is. You know, you have to have a certain amount of blind faith, and that the person really does want to be with you. And that the the other thing about love is that it's not based on uh, saying this person has all the great qualities, right? You're you're not saying that you I finally found the person who doesn't have any of the things that bother me about other people. It's saying I I found the person who has all these flaws, and I love them anyway, right? Absolutely. And 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 a certain acceptance of the fact that of your own uh flaws and that knowing that the person loves you not despite them but be you know because of them even and that that you and when you love somebody you single them out as as this unique individual it's this amazing kind of act of the of of having this kind of transcendental uh idealized feeling blended stirred perfectly with the uh with a real incarnate you know uh, contingent totally human person right and i think that that's um that's the that's the struggle i think that's evident in this that i think that like f finding that faith and and self acceptance and 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 even obviously like a certain amount of self confidence also requires requires faith and and a certain uh, uh, lack of objectivity because obviously if you, if you just think about who is richer more handsome better lover yeah of course there's always going to be people like that and 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 I think that that you have to um, and so what is what is your version of jealousy look like because that's that's what I just read, I think, is a version of jealousy that's rooted in kinds of insecurity or kinds of kind of self worth, uh, <clears throat> the the waxing and waning of self worth, to use my eclipse metaphor. Um, but then, like, do you experience it similarly? Because I've seen you in throes of jealousy. Yeah. But do, but do they do they also match with insecurity? Is that a universal thing? Yes, I mean, I definitely have like fear of abandonment and 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 need for validation and all of these human flaws, 
but I, I also have, I do, I, I feel lucky because I've usually been right when I've been, I, I'm not usually a jealous person. I'm able to, you know, navigate polyamory quite well. But the few times I have felt jealousy, I think it's been grounded in the reality of, of, uh, of the real threat of losing somebody. Well, and, was, so I, mine was also grounded in reality in essence in the beginning. Um, uh, you know, I was, I had a suspicion that someone, a girlfriend at the time was cheating on me and then she was. Mm. And so then it's a funny thing where kind of, to me that then means that whatever the in intuition that's kicking in at that moment, it's right. That's the worst thing in the world. Right. Th that one thing, that one, honestly, I just wish uh, she had just told wrong. me, she told me immediately so I wouldn't have had to figure it out because then I never would have had the intuition, which I then had to dig to find the truth under. Uh, and so like it, it, it made the feeling, the intuition valid. And so to me, I actually think that would be scarier to be right, that the jealousy is correct. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's when, I had a, a very early open relationship in my 20s and it was super fun the whole time. Uh, I, I, I got excited hearing about her other stories and, and she had sex with other people and it was fine. And then there was this one time that she just like, just kissed the guy and I was just completely just freaked out by it. And, um, and sure enough, as soon as we broke up, uh, there's, I think, as far as I know, they're still married 20 years later. So there is, I mean, you know, there's that funny saying, uh, uh, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. I mean, there is, <laughs> there is the reality that we are, especially in this day and age, um, uh, replaceable and, and, and commodified and, uh, disposable in some way. And, um, <sighs> Yeah, there's no easy answer, but if then you, and they're also they're also we you don't have total control on your feelings, so those two realities don't paint a slightly bleak picture. Um, and then and then there's the big question: is how much is the other person responsible for making you feel validated and and safe? Right. Like I I think I I put a lot of a lot of responsibility on the other to. Uh, find their own validation and I try and do that myself but it, again it's an ideal and this is all all this conversation is about this kind of collision between ideal and reality right yeah, I mean that's yeah. a lot what your what your play is about yeah absolutely, absolutely. Um, but and then and then the, the degree to which we are self-contained uh, entities also we're making ourselves porous and we are accepting that we aren't uh, uh, totally autonomous when we fall in love, right? Mm -hmm. So you are handing your fragile heart to somebody and saying, be careful with it, right? You're offering them a heart-shaped pancake. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so it's, it's, uh, it's treacherous waters, but, the, but, the, but also glorious. And the view is magnificent. And uh, uh, I don't know. I mean... It's definitely, and some people prefer French toast. Yeah, <laughs> do the um, I, I'm I'm asking myself, uh, does uh, would would we just be better off without jealousy, if it just wasn't an emotion? You know, like the yeah. So, well, that goes back to my um, previous thing about 
like you cannot remove a behavior from someone without it having a consequence. So I think <clears throat> if I remove jealousy entirely from myself, I also might not do anything. Right. You might, might just be detached. I might not try to be a better person or something. I might not go for a run. Uh, I mean, I've never gone on a run. Um, <laughs> I, but like, I might not aspire to try to do something that I believe that other people admire. You know, like I, I just might, my ambition might just dissolve. It, it might be a response. The, the, the thing fueling my desire to do stuff might just be jealousy. Maybe it's the... But we can sublimate... Yeah feelings too right i mean there is this notion that you can take jealousy and turn it into admiration right yeah that'd be that'd be cool um <laughs> yeah but alchemy is also impossible yeah <laughs> the philosopher's so, stone is a myth alchemy is impossible but sublimation isn't right like it's we alchemy it, I, I would argue that jealousy is a uh, uh essential element on the periodic table of emotions you and don't I, think it's a secondary no it's a noble gas <laughs> See, I disagree. And I you think. can split it, and the atmosphere will burn. So you think it's just? I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think maybe being hungry is just you're jealous of not of. Um, uh, uh, my, I'm breaking down. <laughs> I don't know what I was. Saying. I was trying to think, like imagine a way in which all motivations are just uh, motivation to to like jealousy for the kind of person who isn't hungry. But I'm just being silly. Glib. The other thing that helps me a lot is imagining myself. And we the jealousy is very self-centered often, right? And because we've always talked about these insecurities and everything, it's it's very, am I good enough, right? And And I think that like shifting that perspective into like, okay, I've behaved in these ways. I've misbehaved in certain ways. It hasn't meant that I don't love the person, that I don't want to be with them. Um, I mean, some people have this, this quality too much. And I think they, they hate themselves and no, don't trust themselves and have the worst feelings about themselves and therefore project that onto the other person. I think that's an, the, the opposite problem. But the, the, the nice version of that is say, is to be forgiving of yourself and realize that we're all gonna, you know, get some thrill from having a connection with other, another person. It doesn't mean that, I, that you don't want to be in the relationship you're in anymore. Yeah. In fact, being allowed to do that w in whatever way, whether it's fully in polyamory or just within a monogamous relationship, just have a, an innocent flirtation with somebody at a dinner. I mean, in Italy, they, they, they purposely never see couples together at, at, at dinner parties. And if there's multiple tables at a wedding or something, couples are sat separately yeah. because there's a realization. And I think older cultures have these kind of things worked out more than newer ones. And, um, and I think that this is, there's a deep wisdom in saying like, it is good to have these little escape valves of like, uh, a fun flirtatious mm -hmm. connection with somebody. And that can actually feed the relationship, uh, and make it better, you know, and, and bring, bring, f and, and that kind of uncertainty also, uh, breeds eroticism within a couple because when you're there's nothing less erotic than total safety um and predictability i think those are just on the opposite side of the of this of the spectrum of the axis i like how our audience doesn't expect us to end the episode right you're done no <laughs> okay <laughs> thanks for joining us surprise see you soon Hang on a second.